Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Caitlin Gehring with Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Neil Gaiman, author of three upcoming audiobooks. The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains, on sale June 17th. Chew's First Day of School, on sale June 24th. And The Graveyard Book, a full cast production, on sale September 30th. Neil Gaiman is the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books for readers of all ages, and the recipient of numerous literary awards, including Audiobook of the Year. Originally from England, he now lives in America. Harper Audio presents Choose First Day of School by Neil Gaiman. I'm Neil Gaiman. There was a thing that Chu could do. Chu was worried. He had never been to school before. What will happen? Chu asked his father. Will they be nice? They will be nice. So, you know, it's actually kind of funny because last year in Harper Audio, we jokingly called it the year of Neil Gaiman because you released five audiobooks, including Silver Dream, which you co-wrote it. Um, however, it looks like there's no slowing down for you in 2014 where you are once again releasing three more audiobooks scheduled. The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains, Choose First Day of School, and the full cast production of The Graveyard Book. To get us started, um, can you tell us a bit about each book? Uh, well, yes. Let's, let's start with the least complicated <laughs> one, uh, which is Choose First Day of School, uh, which actually, interestingly, in the UK is Choose First Day at School. So we had to record the title page twice. Um, which is a book for very small children. And uh, last year I did Tuesday and uh, loved that it was probably the, the shortest audiobook I've ever done. And this is a little bit longer because more stuff happens. And uh, in this, Chu gets to go to school for the first day and he gets to sneeze. Um, and it's a little bit, the story about being different, really, and embracing our differences and figuring out who we are. And I thought it was a, a fun sort of message to kids going to school is you will not be like everybody else, and that's okay. So that really is what Choose First Day of School is about. Um, and I've already written, and currently Adam Rex is drawing uh, the next Chew book, which is Tuesday at the Beach where he sneezes and breaks the sea. And it's all about, then they have to try and make him sneeze again to fix the sea. And uh, it's, it's a very strange story. Each, each of the two books gets more and more complicated. So I figure, you know, by the time I get up to the 30th or the 40th two book, he's going to be running a small used car dealership somewhere in America and, and you know, probably having a really sad affair. He's going to be married. He's going to have children. <laughs> um, dealing with erectile dysfunction, but still still sneezing, I hope, once amusingly at some point in each Chew story. This panda's going to have a complicated life. He's going to have a very long life. I don't know. Maybe, I, I, probably it won't happen. But I do love the fact that Tuesday is a book for, you know, 18-month to, to three-year-olds. And then Chew's First Day at School is really a book sort of more for four-year-olds. And, Tuesday at the beach is more complicated. It's, it's more plot. Nice. Who knows? He may keep going. I love writing about you. Um, 
so that's the chew book and it, the best thing about doing chew books is um pretending to sneeze in the studio because um at least once i have delivered a incredibly wonderful performance only to discover that i had sort of blown out all of the uh, all of the dials and i was told to go away and sort of sneeze more quietly at something of a distance and the the magical things would happen in the studio and giant engines would go on and noises but i, I love doing them so that's tuesday and in this case choose first day at school um then there's a full cast graveyard book and a few years ago we did a full cast um american gods which was enormously fun and it was educational i think for all of us we all sort of learned stuff about american gods we had an amazing cast we did it here in new york i did some of these sort of the in-between chapters i was the narrator for some of them and i did the before and after stuff but i was just really proud of it and it won awards and it made people happy and a few years ago, um, 2008, the Graveyard Book came out and it won the Newbery Medal and the Carnegie Medal and the Hugo Award and, and many other awards I've now forgotten, which is probably embarrassing. Sorry if you gave me an award and I've forgotten it. Um, and I did the audiobook and it won and I won the audiobook of the year um, for the audiobook recording I did. So you might think that you wouldn't want to improve on that. But the idea of doing a full cast recording was one that just seemed absolutely too good to miss. Um, and we have the cream of English actors. Um, we've got, we're, we're recording it in the UK. We have a absolutely fantastic team, but None of it has yet been recorded except for one little bit. And um, it's rather peculiar because when the BBC did their audio version of Neverwhere, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and James McAvoy and Christopher Lee and all sorts of Natalie Dormer, all sorts of amazing people, Bernard Cribbins was in it, um, Anthony Stewart Head, you know, this this fantastic cast list um six weeks before everybody recorded their bit i went into a studio and um became a security guard and the fop with no name and i got to record my bits so technically i'm in neverwhere um in the first and the last episodes i i have my cameos but i never actually got to meet and hang out with any of the other actors and um rather tragically that has again happened today in which uh, as as i've just gone into the studio and um i have recorded the part of a poet and the glorious thing about the poet in question is he is the probably the largest character i've ever written he he is a terrible poet although he doesn't know it and he has no self-awareness of any kind 
and is awash in classical allusions and was always expected in my head to talk like a character in an 18th century play. You know, as if somebody like Richard Brinsley Sheridan had written a bad poet in one of his plays. And I wanted him to talk kind of like that. So I got to do that. I got to act in that kind of style, or overact, I think I should say, much more accurately. And uh, so my bit will now be cut in to a bunch of graveyard book actors. And uh, when the full cast recording it comes out, I will be one of that full cast. And that makes me very happy. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned how big the character is, because earlier we were talking about how you wanted to approach the different characters. You're like, well, the poet, as long as, you know, you know the poet, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> yeah, we were talking um, in the elevator coming up here about whether I was comfortable with actors acting or whether I wanted everyone doing it as a reading and sort of modulating it slightly down. And it, A, I'm great with everything being a performance, you know, for me, the 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 ideal is probably listening to the Neverwhere audio play. You just you just disappear into it, and American Gods, which is much the same. Um, but as I said, you know, the I get to record the poet, and he is so much larger. He is pure ham, and so everything compared to him is going to be normal sized, <laughs> no matter how large it is. So that leads us with our last book, The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains, the most complicated. It is definitely the most complicated of the three. Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains began about five or six years ago with a story. I'd been haunted for a long time by various sort of bits of Scottish legend that I'd heard. I have a house in Western Scotland and, and there whenever I can be, which is not often enough. And I love it there so much. It's just a good place. But it haunts me. And I wrote this story, The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains. And it's set in Jacobite times, in a slightly alternate history, not quite in our world. And it's about a very small person and a man who is taller than average, going off together to the Black Mountains on the Misty Isle, where they will go to a cave which is said to contain gold, funding the return of the king across the water. The story takes about an hour, a little over an hour to read. And I'd just finished writing it when I was asked by Sydney Opera House if I wanted to do an evening in Sydney Opera House. And if I did, would I like to do something special? Could they commission something original? And I said yes. And they suggested that four-play string quartet would create music to accompany me. And I love the idea of doing that because there's something very lonely about being out on a stage just reading a story. So I thought, well, if I'm there with the string quartet, it'll be great. And Eddie Campbell, who's a wonderful artist I've known for most of my life, agreed to do paintings. And uh, it was very appropriate because Eddie at the time lived in Australia, and he's Scottish. So I thought, good, I have the Scottish, I have the Australian. And uh, Eddie did these fantastic 
paintings which were projected above me. We did it in the opera house. The, I'm reading with a string quartet accompanying me. It's unlike anything else. It's as if it's creating um, sort of a movie or something. And we got a standing ovation. And we're immediately invited to go and do it in Hobart in Tasmania. So we did. And coming out of there, we thought, you know, we should do this in a studio. So we went into the studio and recorded it live. So it's not like I laid down the recording and then uh, foreplay played along to that recording. They actually, I, I did the reading, foreplay did the playing, and the whole thing was put together. And it's amazing. I'm so proud of it. It's as if you're in some kind of weird mind movie. Uh, and it's a very dark story. No, I, re I remember listening to the bit because we're actually using that recording as uh, for the audiobook. So that's going to be really exciting. And it was very moving to hear like the instrumental come in. And like, I think there was one part where they it sounded like the bird, the seabirds, like there were, I could hear the goals. And it was just very unique experience as a listener. How was that to be in the studio to record? I mean, you said it was like a very amazing um, session, but like, well, it, did it you was guys interesting. Take I mean, things? By the time we were in the studio, we knew what we were the, we we knew what we were doing. Where it was amazing mm. was when we were sitting in a tiny room in the basement of the Sydney Opera House, working it out together the day before we were going to perform it. And that's the point <laughs> where I'd say, "Well, I don't know. Can we can we get something more here? You know and and Lara would turn, who's one of the four-play string quartet, would turn to Shenzo, who's another, and say, Shenzo, can you, can you do, like, you know, make it sound like, like seabirds? And he's going, what, like this? And suddenly he's playing, he's playing seagulls. And you're going, how, how are you just playing seagulls on your violin? That's a violin, and you're doing seagulls. And he is. Um, there's no special effects. There's four guys. And I've, watch them do amazing things. Um, occasionally, Lara will come in and sort of sing wordlessly as well. So you get basically four instruments and a human voice. And it's just magical. And I had a certain amount of input during those initial um, rehearsals and run-throughs because we get to the end and I say, you know, I didn't like that bit you did there. And they would come back to me and say, can you shut up after you read this line and give us about a minute to just sort of play a theme and then we'll, we'll head on into it. And so lots of backwards and forwards between me and them as we built this thing. And as Eddie Campbell sat there clicking through his, his pictures, figuring out which picture was going to go up when. Oh. So that sounds like such a dynamic experience. So beyond what you often find in the studio. Um, and it kind of matches what is, if you look back on your body of work, you always seem to be constantly experimenting and pushing boundaries between medium and genre. In this case, you were combining classical music and art. Um, and in Sam 19, Midsummer's Night Dream, you won the 1991 World Fantasy Award for Best Short Fiction, the first comic to do so. I mean, this seems to be your calling card in many ways. Is this something you consciously do, or is it a product of the stories you want to tell? 
it's much more, I think, a product of the stories I want to tell. I never get up in the morning and go, I think I will, I will break the bounds between established order of what people do in art. I, I'm much more likely to get up and go, you know, this thing would be really fun. And I've never done one of these before. And I don't think anyone else has ever done one of these before. So probably I will wind up looking stupid and having egg on my face. But if it works, it'll be really glorious. And that's kind of where I am on most projects. And there are things where, you know, you want the thing to be glorious. You want it to be huge. Um, you want it to be unlike anything anyone else has done before. Um, but in order to do that, you have to be willing to look stupid. And you have to be willing for it to fail. And sometimes it does. You know, a lot of the things I get right, I get right because I've been getting them wrong for a while, um, or because I've worked out what I'm doing. You know, the, the first time I ever found myself reading to improvise music was just being thrown up on a stage. Um, I'd written this thing, the liner notes, for my then friend, now wife's album, Who Killed Amanda Palmer? And Amanda said, do you want to read it on stage? And I said, sure. And she said, well, okay, well, we'll do, um, you know, me and Zoe and Lynn and the violinist, we'll just improvise behind you. And suddenly I was reading over a cellist and a violinist and a keyboard player making noise behind me. And I was suddenly having to figure out where you go when you do that, how you play the silences, how you find the rhythm, how the weird little feedback loops that happen that sometimes allow you or force you to find the poetry and what you're writing because you have to find the rhythm. Um, one of the things I love about The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains is it's not the reading that I would have done if there hadn't been a string quartet playing in the other room and being piped in through my headphones that I hadn't been hearing on the stage because some of the beats are places where I would actually find myself going in and finding the beat with their beat and going and finding the music of the words and the rhythm of the words and the way that the words spoke to other words and the way the words twined and intertwined and repeated and beat. And that would not have been possible if it was just me in a studio on my own. Can I ask, what's one example of a time where you have tried something new and it just did not go as planned? <laughs> oh, um, the Neverwhere TV series. I think I didn't quite know enough about what I was doing. I didn't know enough to say no to people when they would say, and this is what we're doing. And there are places where now, if... You know, if having created the Neverwhere TV series, if during the process of production, people had been saying, well, actually, we think, you know, we're going to do this, I would, I would now just go, no, we're not. But back then, I thought all of these people knew what they were doing. And I would watch this thing that I was making get sort of slowly swept away and not really being the thing that I had in my head anymore. On the other hand, if that hadn't occurred, I don't believe I would have written the novel because the novel was basically written in a huge attempt for me to go, no, this is what I meant. It was meant to be this, not that thing that you put on TV. It's this. And that, for me, meant that I got it right second time. 
how young were you when the Neverwhere TV I'm, show came out? Because Neverwhere was your first novel, right? Oh, I don't know what my first novel was. Um, <laughs> There's been so many. Well, it, it's, it's a weird one, actually. Technically, what was my first novel? Because um, Good Omens could be my first novel. Oh, yeah, that's right. With, written with Terry Pratchett. But that's my first collaborative novel, but was still first novel. Neverwhere could be a first novel. Stardust was written and published, I think, before Neverwhere, technically, although it was the, uh, in, in illustrated form, although unillustrated, it was, I think, came after. But then Neverwhere was sort of also collaborative because I was collaborating with the scripts and I was collaborating with me. So American Gods could be my first novel. It was my first completely solo book. But by that time, I'd already written several novels, so I have no idea what my first novel is. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting you mentioned Stardust as well um, as your host of other adult books because you're actually a writer that spans across adults, teens, tweens, young children. Can you talk about how the process is for you for when you write to these different audiences? It's pretty much the same. Most of the time I'm not really thinking about age. I'm thinking about the book. Occasionally, with something like Tuesday... I'm really trying to put myself in the mindset of what was it like to be two, three years old and genuinely excited and interested about what was on the next page. What's on the next page is a mystery and we will turn over the page and, oh my God, it's so exciting. And trying to remember that feeling and building in, you know, a sneezing panda just as this thing that happens and the action of turning the page and and I loved that, and I loved it so much. I don't normally look at my Amazon reviews because that way madness lies. Um, <laughs> but with Tuesday, I brought it up, and I noticed lots and lots of really, really enthusiastic reviews. Then I would get a couple of these one- and two-star reviews. I thought, oh, I wonder what people are saying, and I clicked on them. And my favorite comment, which was echoed you know, a couple of times, was people saying, Huge fan of Neil Gaiman's novels. I really like American Gods. I bought Tuesday, but it's a bit thin. <laughs> and there's part of me that wants to go, you know, you're, you're not two, are you? Uh, it's really not aimed at you. Normally, I like to think of my books as being aimed at everybody. And I, I think Tuesday, actually, you know, if you have a small kid, you want to read it to them and then they enjoy it and they make you read it to them again. And pretty soon you will at least enjoy the way that it's constructed, I hope, and the way that you can point to the pictures and see all the different things. But it's still in my head, it's, it's a book. It's a book I wish I'd read when I was two, a book I wish had existed when I was two. Beyond that, I tend not to think too much about who books are for, which is made evident because every now and then people argue. And not only people argue, but different publishers do different editions. You know, Stardust, as far as I'm concerned, is a book. It's been published as a young adult book. It's been published as an adult book. It won the Yelzer Award as for adult book that kids like, as did Nancy Boys, as did Neverwhere. I'm glad to say that American Gods didn't because given the fact that the end of chapter one ends with a man being consumed by a apparent prostitute's vulva, uh, leaving nothing behind, I'm kind of glad that wasn't suggested as a book that, that kids would like. Um, 
Although apparently there was some discussion, I was told, by the young adult library services um, people. The books go back and forth. The fact that there was considerable debate between me and my agent about um, Coraline, which I thought was a kid's book and she thought was an adult book. That was a kid's book, but now it's been published as well as in an adult edition, as has the graveyard book. And all of this kind of stuff for me just tends to indicate that publishing categories are messier and mushier than we tend to imagine. And the truth is, it's books and it's stories and people like stories. You actually just finished recording Chew's first day of school before this interview. But what was your first audiobook that you ever narrated? Do you remember how it felt to be in the booth for the first time? Before that, I remember the very, very first audiobook I ever did. And I would have been about nine years old, and I had a tape recorder, little reel-to-reel tape recorder that I borrowed from my dad. And I recorded me reading Comet in Moominland by Tove Janssen, a Moomin troll book for my little sister Lizzie. And... I just liked the idea that I could record this book for her. And then she, because she liked me reading to her, could play it. And I don't think she ever did actually play it, but I proudly recorded the entirety of me reading Comet in Moominland. But the first time I ever went into the studio was in about 1991 or 1992. And I recorded with Alan Kushner, who is a famous author and award-winning audiobook narrator herself and had an NPR show. And uh, Ellen was my director. And I recorded a bunch of short stories for a CD and of original short, uh, short stories, a double CD called Warning Contains Language, which I loved as a title. I thought Warning Contains Language, it's such a great title. And then Diamond Distributors put it out in their first um, catalogue, listed as Untitled Neil Gaiman CD, uh, Warning Contains a Lot of Swearing and Banned Language. And I went, no, no, that was the title, it was Warning Contains Language, it was clever. It was, so, but, but that was the first um, thing I ever recorded. I think I'd done about three CDs of my short stories before I could convince anybody to actually let me record my own audiobooks. And it was those CDs that let me, because um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but normally they don't like, and they, meaning you, um, <laughs> don't actually like letting authors come and read their own stuff, because mostly we're rubbish. And we are. It's a thing about authors. A lot of us are... We, we hear the music in our head, but we cannot sing it. But it was the fact that I'd actually recorded these CDs of me reading my stuff and that they'd been popular and they had sold and nobody hated them. That meant that I was able to record, start recording my things. But I'm trying to remember what the first actual audiobook that I did was, and I think it may have been Caroline in 2002. Having said that, I said no to doing American Gods 
because there were too many different American accents. And I knew that while I could hear the music in my head, I could not sing it. And um, a few years later with the Nancy Boys, I said no again to doing that one because I wanted, uh, and I really wanted Lenny Henry to do it. I'd written it with Lenny's voice in my head. And I also knew that any book with four little old Jamaican ladies in it was not going to be narrated by me. Have things changed since then? I mean, since that first experience of going to the booth, like, do you feel more comfortable now? Or is it just kind of like, I'm doing an audiobook today? Or do you still feel, like, nervous? I think the I don't feel nervous. What I do, it's kind of like the pregnancy thing, where you, uh, you know, you talk to women who are pregnant, and they start telling you about how it's a really good thing that they had amnesia after their last pregnancy because otherwise they would never have done it again. And now <laughs> they can't quite believe the amnesia they had because it all comes flooding back. With audiobooks for me, what I remember is the pleasure. What I remember is the, the pride in the book. What I remember is looking down and seeing the audiobook that I recorded and feeling proud of it and going, you know, that is a really good thing. And what I forget is what it does to your head to get into a studio and by 10 o'clock in the morning to be recording a book with your attention on each word and you're getting each word right because you're not allowed to get each word wrong. And you're reading it with this sort of laser beam focused attention, just word to word to word to word to word. And by four o'clock that afternoon, you are burned out. You are a husk. You cannot do it anymore. You don't have anything. You are kind of a little bit like a zombie. <laughs> you stumble around. You leave the studio. You can't quite remember your name or how to talk. And blessed sleep comes and you go in the next morning and you do it. And, you know, the last time I did it properly, um, I was in uh, Austin, Texas, in the Tequila Mockingbird Studios with a wonderful engineer um, who also wound up being my director called Shana Brown. And we did two books. So it essentially took a full week and uh, I remember we did some short stories and then we did the whole, almost as a warm-up, because I was recording Smoke and Mirrors, which hadn't previously existed as an audio book. And then we did the whole of the ocean at the end of the lane. And the hardest thing with that was going on the BBC website every morning and finding the Sussex accents because I would get them and I would have them, and they were the Sussex accent of my childhood, and then by the next morning, it would have started to fade, and I'd have to go and find it, and suddenly, you know, listening to an old man saying, and then we went to school, and we had cake, and we all had cake that morning, and I'm going, and we all had cake that morning, you know, and you're trying to get the thing right, and get the voice, um, and then I would record it, and it was 
almost all wonderful. It was exhausting. It was brain damaging. It was weird. <laughs> um, it also got to be something else, which I've, I've never really had before, which was incredibly embarrassing. Um, because just by the luck of the draw, the very, very last story um, that we wound up recording was a story called Tastings, which is the nearest thing to pornography I'd ever written. Um, and by this point, I'd spent five days with Shana working on our, on two books, and we've been very, very close uh, with a piece of glass in between us. Um, and we, we were friends, and here is this astoundingly beautiful young lady, and here's me, and suddenly we get to the last, last story, and um, I think I read it probably read as a lobster from beginning to end, and Sheena disappeared behind her console. She sort of slumped down, so you couldn't actually see her head anymore. Occasionally I'd see hair bobbing if I looked up, but I tried not to look up because we were both kind of pretending the other one wasn't there while I read the story and thought, oh, Neil Gaiman of 15 years ago, you are embarrassing me right now. Now, I remember the first book I directed actually had a romantic scene. We'll call it romantic. And I had a similar reaction of, I'm just going to look very straight at the paper and be like, oh, you didn't miss a word. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of how I felt on that one. I was like, I'm going to say all the words in the order they're in. Yep. Yeah. That was an unexpected uh, danger of audiobooks. But mostly the thing is, you know, on the one hand, they really are wonderful. And on the other, they are more exhausting, more brain draining and they take more out of you than you would ever imagine. But that's not true of going in and recording a short thing. But, you know, that's true of a book. By day three, you are a zombie. <laughs> um, what is, and this is the last couple questions, uh, what is your favorite thing about audiobooks? Listening or narrating, despite turning into a zombie after three days? or something completely different? I love listening to them. If I didn't love them as a medium, I don't think any of this stuff would matter. I've been curating a line of books over at audible.com, which is mostly stuff that I wanted to hear. You know, I'd look around and go, there is no audiobook of Dimension of Miracles by Robert Sheckley, and I want to hear one, and I think John Hodgman should record it, so we're going to make it happen. And audible.com would go, oh, okay. I was so thrilled when at the Audi Awards a couple of years ago, one of my books, um, Anita, by uh, Keith Roberts, won an Audi Award as Best Fantasy because I loved it. It was a book that I'd loved as a kid. I loved the idea of getting it back into print as an audio book. The reader did this wonderful, wonderful job. It became something that for me was just sort of so alive and so interesting. And... The idea that a book that had basically been out of print for 40 years won an award as best audio fantasy um, was, was thrilling because it meant that people were hearing it and people were listening and people were voting. 
And Miss Kushner, who you originally worked with your first set of recorded books and short stories, you ended up working with her again on this program, right? I did, yeah. Um, Alan wrote an amazing book called Swords Point, and she and a director called Suzeza put this thing together where they, some of it is acted and some of it is narrated. And, uh, but it's the book, Swords Point. And I did a tiny, tiny part, actually in the sequel, Return of the King. And, and then I did uh, The Privilege of the Swords. I, I've, I've been doing little cameos for her um, and loving it. So, so yes, Alan is amazing. And I like the fact that you know, it's that, that wonderful thing about friends is people stay in your life for a very long time. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we finish? The audio book that I'm listening to for pleasure right now is ostensibly recorded by a man called Robert Whitfield, although I believe that is actually, from listening to it, a pseudonym for one Simon Vance. Because um, it sounds like Simon Vance. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, it's wonderful, and I've been listening to uh, it's by Mervyn Peake, and two volumes. Um, the first, Titus Grown, the second, Gormenghast, or maybe it's the other way around. And I'm now halfway through the second book, and it's just such a glorious experience. It's what I do when I, if I'm going on a long drive, or even if I'm just going to go onto the stepper and work out, I will listen to the Robert Whitfield recording of Gormenghast and be made happy. Well, we'll have to find out if that's actually Simon Vance. It'll be now a great mystery to unravel. Um, well, once again, thank you so much. This has been so lovely to have a chance to talk to you for this podcast. You are so welcome. It was fun. For breakfast, I made porridge and threw in some dried plums to soften them. The mountains were black and grey against the white of the sky. We saw eagles, huge and ragged of wing, circling above us. Callum set a sober pace, and I walked beside him, taking two steps for every one of his. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Today we spoke with Neil Gaiman, author of three upcoming audiobooks, The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains, on sale June 17th, Choose First Day of School, on sale June 24th, and The Graveyard Book, a full cast production, on sale September 30th, and listen to excerpts from the audiobooks narrated by the author. We hope you will join us again. Thank you for listening.